Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode number 198, the 1991 Soviet coup d'etat attempt. Yes, I know, I promised you that my next episode was going to be about the last two Rurik dynasty czars of Russia, Fyodor III and Ivan the Terrible. But I came across this topic and knew I had to cover it. I promise to get to the two of them soon enough, as I have another topic I want to cover next time that really intrigued me as well. We'll get into that later. While the Western world glorifies Mikhail Gorbachev, people in Russia and many of the other Soviet states view him as a pariah and the leading cause of the collapse of the USSR. In hindsight, we see how some of his policies, like perestroika and glasnost, sped up the dissolution of his country. But we also have to be fair and admit that there were severe problems, especially financial, that also caused the downfall. Those are not the issues I'll be dealing with today. I'm going to concentrate more on the actual coup d'etat that occurred beginning on August 19, 1991, and ended three days later on the 22nd. But I will talk about some of the reasons why the men who would try this attempt of a coup did what they did. Known as the August coup d'etat or the August putsch, the attempt to overthrow Mikhail Gorbachev kept the world on edge as well as all of the Soviet Union. Since coming to power in 1985, Gorbachev installed two concepts in his attempt to reform the USSR. Perestroika, which is the restructuring of the Soviet political and economic system, and glasnost, meaning openness. Both of these ideas were deeply disturbing to the stuck-in-the-mud, stuck-in-the-past nomenklatura, or known as the bureaucracy. The eight men involved in the coming coup attempt were born between 1924 and 1937, most of whom grew up during the Great Patriotic War and Stalin's reign. They began their careers during the leadership of Khrushchev, but really got into power during the era of stagnation under Brezhnev. This was a period in Soviet history where the economy stopped growing and the military budget was over 27% of the total government spending. The influence of the time of Brezhnev on the bureaucrats was immense. They had little knowledge of how bad things were financially and believed that the communist system was strong enough to carry them through any struggles. Gorbachev discovered that the country was basically broke in 1985 when he became general secretary of the Communist Party. When mentoring with Yuri Andropov years before, Gorbachev asked his boss if he could see the financials of the country and was quickly and firmly told that this was none of his business. It was apparent that the leadership back then already knew the shape of the budget and the economy, and it was not good. Gorbachev believed that what was needed was a restructuring of the system and not a total teardown. Perestroika and glasnost were the answer in his mind. What was becoming apparent was the impending doom of the Soviet system as a whole in 1991. On top of it, the leadership of the Soviet Union saw that Gorbachev was moving from adherence to Marxism-Leninism to one of social democracy. The Gang of Eight, as they were to be known, had had enough and believed that in order to save the USSR, they needed to act and act quickly. 
The main reason they thought they needed to pull off the coup was the proposal by Gorbachev to restructure the USSR into a new entity called the Union of Sovereign States, which would become the basis for the CIS, or the Commonwealth of Independent States, which formed when the founding republics signed the Belavizia Accords on December 8, 1991. The Gang of Eight, also known as the State Committee on the State of Emergency, the GKCHP, thought it inconceivable that Gorbachev would have the audacity to dissolve the country of Lenin and Stalin. The eight men that would instigate the attempted coup were Vice President Gennady Yanayev, Prime Minister Valentin Pavlov, Head of the KGB Vladimir Karyuchkov, Minister of Defense Dmitry Yazhov, Minister of the Interior Boris Pugo, Member of the CPSU Central Committee Oleg Baklanov, Chairman of the Peasant Union Vasily Starodubsev, and the President of the Association of the State Enterprises and Objects of Industry, Transport and Communications. I love the titles of Soviet um, bureaucrats, uh, just fabulous names. Uh, this guy was uh, Alexander Tizyakov. Dmitry Yazhov is the only one of the group still alive as of the original upload of this episode on September 22, 2019. He is 94 years of age. The idea to take action began on December 11, 1990, with KGB Chairman Vladimir Karyuchkov wanting to prepare a plan of measures that can be made in case a state of emergency was declared in the USSR. He initially brought in two KGB agents to produce the plan and began to bring in allies to help him put the idea in front of Gorbachev. He began with Yazhov, Pugo, Pavlov, Yaneyev, and Baklanov. Two others he contacted included Gorbachev Secretary Head Valery Bolden and Central Committee Secretary Oleg Shenin, neither of whom ended up in the final coup attempt. The idea at first wasn't to overthrow Gorbachev, but to have him declare a state of emergency and restore order. In 1990, the governments of Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Hungary, Poland, and Romania, all part of the Warsaw Pact, had overthrown their communist leaders. The Soviet leadership was frightened that they were next. As 1990 turned into 1991, things began to devolve, much of it instigated by the Russian SFSR President Boris Yeltsin. Just as an aside, the decline of the control of the Soviet Union over the Warsaw Pact countries had its beginning with the Solidarity Movement in Poland, led by Lech Walesa in 1980. In my other history podcast, Battleground History, I'll be covering the life of Valencia in episode 57, which will be initially aired on September 28, 2019, when he faces against faces off against Serbian inventor Nikola Tesla. Uh, I just uploaded uh, episode 56, which included another uh, Soviet hero, Georgi Zhukov, who faces off against the opponent of Peter the Great, uh, Swedish king Charles Twelfth. So it's up there right now. Go to Battleground History. Lots of Russians are there, like Peter the Great, Alexander Suvorov, Catherine the Great, Ivan the Terrible, even Yemelyan Pugachev is covered. Well, let's get back to where we're at. 
The first sign that something was up was an article published in Sovetskaya Rosaya on July 23, 1991, entitled A Word to the People. The word was that action was necessary to prevent the coming calamity. Many in the government believed that the Soviet Union was in a death spiral. The problem was twofold. Why was it collapsing? And what needed to be done to prevent or reform the system to protect it? I will devote the next episode, number 199, on the many theories as to why the Soviet Union collapsed. One book my brother found in a used bookstore recently, The Coming Soviet Crash by Judy Shelton, was published in 1989, two years before the collapse, and it has some incredible insights into the event, many of the things I've shared in the past. I'm looking forward to sharing my thoughts as well as other experts' opinions. Now back to the topic at hand. The Gang of Eight needed an opening to get Gorbachev out of office. They needed a time when he wasn't surrounded by his supporters. They needed him to be away from Moscow. Their time came when on August 6th, Gorbachev went on holiday to his dacha in Foros, Crimea. He planned to remain there until August 20th when he would sign the new Union Treaty establishing the Union of Sovereign States replacing the USSR. Replacing a sitting head of the Soviet Union while they were off on vacation was not unprecedented, as if you remember, Nikita Khrushchev had been ousted while he was on vacation in October of 1964 and vacation at Pitsunda with his friend Anastas Mikoyan. The coup that was led by Leonid Brezhnev, first chairman or first deputy premier Alexander Shalepin and KD, KGB chairman Vladimir Semichastny. The Gang of Eight was hoping to pull off the same deal with Gorbachev. In the years from 1990 to 91, though, Gorbachev was beginning to back off from his reforms, which began to alienate the more radical reformers like Yeltsin, and had developed a great deal of animosity from the conservatives. The hardliners in the military, and of course, the KGB, were all looking at the dire situation in Eastern Europe, as well as the Baltic states of Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. What the right wing of the Communist Party was looking at, as Archie Brown said in his book, The Rise and Fall of Communism, quote, their rhetoric spoke of saving the Soviet statehood, not the legacy of Marx and Lenin. Brown further states, quote, by the mid-1980s, few of them any longer believed that socialism would spread to Western Europe, but they were totally unprepared for its disappearance in Eastern Europe. For many, the response was a black backlash against Gorbachev and perestroika. For few, it led to deathbed conversation to the apparently still more radical alternative offered in Russia by Yeltsin. And for a majority, it led to a loss of whatever faith, which they had in most cases been an unreflective habit in mind rather than thought through conviction. In Marxism-Leninism, they had here, hitherto retained. Other issues before the coup created the atmosphere that would not only lead to the attempted takeover, but the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union itself. Edward Shevardnadze was replaced by Alexander Besmertiknik, a career diplomat. The liberal Vadim Bakatin was replaced by Boris Pugo, one of the conspirators. Gennady Yaniev, another soon-to-be member of the gang, 
was made vice president, a brand new post. Yaniev was thought to be loyal to the man who placed him in the new position, but he too would join the coup. None of these men were competent in any way, shape, or form in their jobs, which helped cause the situation to spiral downward. In March of 1991, Gorbachev had changed the Soviet system he inherited from Konstantin Chernenko in 1985, but he fiercely wanted to save the Soviet state. Gorbachev stated, quote, Do you believe it essential to preserve the USSR as a renewed federation of equal sovereign republics in which the rights and freedoms of a person of any nationality will be fully guaranteed? As Archie Brown points out, quote, Six republics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Armenia, Georgia, and Moldova, refused to hold the referendum he wanted to have voted on. By going ahead with the vote without them, Gorbachev was implicitly accepting the possibility that some republics might secede. You know, I find the next line highly interesting and something I did not know. Quote, the right of secession was actually incorporated in the Soviet constitution and had been there since Stalin's time. Well, I don't think anybody was going to secede because you know what Stalin would do to them. Anyways, on August 17th, the planned coup went from idle talk to action. Meeting at a KGB secret house, the gang decided that it was time to pounce. They flew to Gorbachev's residence and surrounded the leader and his family, which included his wife Reza, daughter Irina, her husband, and two granddaughters. The staff were told to stay put and denied the ability to leave as well. The coup members were trying to stop the new union treaty and they knew that Gorbachev was working with Chernyayev on a speech to deliver at the signing. Gorbachev wrote, quote, The introduction of a state of emergency in which even some supporters of perestroika, not to mention those who reach the ideology of dictatorship, see a way out of the crisis, would be a fatal move and the way to a civil war. Frankly speaking, behind the appeals for a state of emergency, it is not difficult sometimes to detect a search return to the political system that existed in the pre-perestroika period. Gorbachev knew that since the cat was out of the bag, there was no way to put it back in. The conspirators were wanting to go back to the so-called good old days. The men who surrounded his dacho included Shenin, Baklanov, Bolden, and Army General Valentin Berenikov. It was the general who most viciously condemned Gorbachev and demanded his resignation as president. Gorbachev was quoted as saying, and I love this, quote, at the end of the conversation, using the strongest of language that Russians always use in such circumstances, I told him where to go. I love that. When Verenikov was interrogated after, arrested, after being arrested post-coup, he complained that Gorbachev had used, quote, unparliamentary expressions when addressing the group. I guess Mikhail had a pretty good temper at the time. Uh, it was right about here that the plot began to unravel. While Baklanov had told Gorbachev that Boris Yeltsin had been arrested, Kryuchkov had rescinded the arrest warrant at the behest of Lukyanov. This was, as Archie Brown points out, quote, a monumental error. The country had heard of the State Committee for the State of Emergency had taken control of the country. Kriochkov 
called Yeltsin and tried to convince him to join the coup because he was having so many problems with Gorbachev. But that, as you know, failed miserably. Due to their fumbling the arrest warrant on Yeltsin, they gave him time to head over to the Moscow White House, the home of the Russian parliament, and counter the attempted coup at 9 a.m. on the morning of August 19th. Armored units of the Tamanskaya Division and another tank division entered Moscow along with several paratroopers, or paratroop groups. Four Russian SFSR deputies were held by the KGB at an army base near Moscow. This further makes the lack of detention of Boris Yeltsin, Yeltsin baffling. And this is one of the telltale signs that the Gang of Eight really had no idea what they were doing. Since everyone knew what was happening, sides began to be taken. There was no unity amongst the military. Even the influential KGB members were not entirely on one side or the other. The coming days would change the world, especially the Soviet world. Part of the reason that things went south for the coup leaders is when the communication lines were not cut off at the White House. Yeltsin was communicating with world leaders like American President George H.W. Bush, and his first phone call actually came from the new British Prime Minister, John Major. It was thought in the West that the coup leaders, since they were backed by the military and the KGB, were going to win. Even the majority of Soviet ambassadors around the world had the same sentiment. A state of emergency was declared in Moscow as people from all over the city began to gather at the White House, erecting barricades. One of the coup leaders, Gennady Yaniyev, declared at the press conference at 5 p.m. that Gorbachev was, quote, unquote, resting. He also said, over these years, he's got very tired and needs some time to get his health back. A significant development, maybe one of the most important, was when uh, Major Evdokimov, chief of staff of a tank battalion of the Tamaskaya Division, declared for the Russian SFSR. It is here that we have that iconic moment in world history when Boris Yeltsin climbed on top of one of the tanks with a bullhorn in hand and addressed the crowd. And yet another blunder of the coup. They did not con gain control of the Soviet state media as Yeltsin's speech was carried on that night's news. The people now knew that some serious stuff was happening and something was about to hit the fan. On August 20th, an order was sent down that Moscow was under curfew, which meant that an attack on the White House was imminent. Alpha Group Commander General Viktor Karpukin, other senior officials such as General Alexander Lebed, began to assess the situation by walking around in the crowd. After reviewing the state of affairs, it was believed that any attack would result in extreme bloodshed. Lebed talked to his superior, Pavel Grachev, and both decided that it would be best if they informed the leaders of the White House protest that an attack was coming and gave them the exact time of 2 a.m. At 1 a.m., barricades were being put in a tunnel to block troops from moving forward. Three men, Dmitry Komar, Vladimir Usov, and Ilya Krichevsky, were killed while putting street cleaning equipment and buses in the tunnel. According to Sergei Parkhomenko, who was with the people at the White House, quote, those deaths played a crucial role. Both sides were so horrified that it brought a halt to everything. 
The incidents convinced Alpha Group and other commanders to stop their move toward the White House, with many deciding to withdraw the troops from Moscow. The coup was coming unraveled. At 8 a.m., the Gang of Five was desperate to come up with a solution to their dilemma. They decided to send Karyuchkov, Yazhov, Baklanov, Tizyakov, Anatoly Lukyanov, and Deputy CPSU General Secretary Vladimir Ivashko to Crimea to meet Gorbachev. Mikhail basically told them to go to hell and refused to meet with any of them. He declared the coup illegal and instigated an investigation of the coup. Three days later, after it started by the Gang of Eight, it was over. On August 22nd, the Gorbachevs and their entourage returned to Moscow. Krayuchkov, Yazhov, and Tizyagov were arrested early that morning when they returned from Crimea. Boris Karlovich Pugo and his wife Valentina Ivanovna killed themselves on the 23rd, although we don't know if she killed herself or he killed her and then pulled a gun on himself. Pavlov Vasily Starodubsev, Baklanov, Bolden, and Shenin were arrested on the 24th. Also, on the 24th of August, Mikhail Gorbachev resigned as the head of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, replaced by Vladimir Ivashko, who in turn resigned five days later when the Supreme Soviet basically closed up shop. Yeltsin and the Russian SFSR began to take control of all communist assets, dismantling a country that had been formed in 1922, ending it 69 years later. By August 27th, the first of the Soviet nations declared independence when Moldova made their announcement. On December 8th, the leaders of Russian, Ukraine, and Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, Boris Yeltsin, Leonid Kravchuk, and Stanislav Shushkevich declared with the Belovesia Accords that the Soviet Union had ceased to exist, quote, as a subject of international law and geopolitical reality. The upshot of the attempted coup in the aftermath was not that the Gang of Eight would save the Soviet Union. Instead, they accelerated its destruction. The ultimate irony is that the coup members had berated Gorbachev for not using force to subdue the breakup of the Warsaw Pact, and yet they were unwilling to use any power to do so. The questions being asked in hindsight is whether the proposed new Union Treaty would have saved part of the USSR, turning it instead into a federation of independent republics under a common leader in government. The treaty was signed on August 20th by Russia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan, but it never went into action. I really don't think that the Soviet Union would have been saved without the attempted coup. What I do believe is that it hurried things up and may, just may have made things go smoother as well as quicker, because as you remember before, we said could have been a civil war. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time as we cover the reasons why the Soviet Union collapsed. So now, as always, das vidanya i spasibo bolshoya.